Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. Sitting in with Leanne and I today is one of our executive producers, Kim Garner. So let's begin. Our guest today is entertainment industry veteran Bruce Sharrett. Bruce started his career in New York working for George Sheck, manager of icons Bobby Darren and Connie Francis. Bruce later went on to manage legendary actor and comedian Alan King, who remains an important part of his life. Bruce's accomplished career includes TV agent, comedy development executive, TV producer, and talent relations executive. He's VP and entertainment historian at the Friars Club in New York City and at global entertainment and media company Rat Pack. Bruce oversees talent-driven projects in all areas of media. He'll share his early love of show business and the legends that have crossed his path along with some of the most interesting and funny stories that happened along the way. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Bruce Sharrett. We're so happy to have you here. I have had the pleasure of being friends with you a long time, and I find you to be one of the most absolutely charismatic, interesting, brightest, just all-around wonderful guy, and I always enjoy your company. It's a curse, you know, (laughs) but I live with it. There is that. So I want to start with something, Bruce. I hear you um, you were basically recruited as a child. Well... I, I don't know that I was recruited or I created a, <laughs> a space. I, I created a, a situation where I allowed myself to be recruited. But my life in show business, I had nobody in show business in my family. My father was a physician, my mother was a school teacher, and I kind of grew up in a very traditional Jewish upper middle class home in Brooklyn. The only thing that was slightly unusual about it was the fact that my parents were older. My father was fifty six when I was born. My mm-hmm. mother was 43, wow. so and my grandmother lived with us, so mm-hmm. I was surrounded by older people. But I, I wanted no part of medicine or school teaching. I wanted to be in show business from the time I was five years old. You know, I can vividly remember trick or treating at the age of five and walking down the street in a tiny little tuxedo, <laughs> a red handkerchief in my breast pocket. And a glass, a little double old-fashioned glass filled with apple juice, a candy cigarette in my hand. And when I would walk to the door and somebody would say, who are you? I would, with complete incredulousness, say, I'm Dean Martin. How could you not know that? So uh, precocious, precocious my, entertainment kid. I suspect that's yes. true. Yes. The, the context of that time and place was, you know, television had like Barbara Streisand coming on television. The whole family would gather around. So was it a shared experience with your family? My father watched cop shows and 
you know, I want all I wanted to watch was Dean Martin and Perry Como, and he was a a, 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 singer, a singer, singer who was at the same era as Frank Sinatra. But he was as big a TV star as you could be. I mean, and now doing an interview about Perry Como, he also I think <laughs> has the distinction of being the only musical artist in history to have a gold record in four different decades. I think he had one in 1939, was his first gold record. Then he had many in the, in the 40s, yeah. many in the in the in the 50s, a number of them in the 60s, and his last one was "It's Impossible" in 1972. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, again, a digression on Perry Como, but I, I just wanted to be in show business. When I was 16, 17 years old, I got a job in the Catskill Mountains, uh, uh, in in the kitchen, in in the in the being a bus boy, I decided that wasn't for me after two days. <laughs> and uh, I talked my way into a job in the nightclub. And I worked in the nightclub for the summer just being a gopher. Labor Day weekend, there was a, a very famous act that was kind of a known primarily as a Jewish act, although they played Las Vegas and they played all the great nightclubs in the country called the Barry Sisters that none of you probably would know. She's but, shaking her head. So. I, I Vaguely. They, My father had albums oh, of comedy I'm, I'm, and music oh, I'm and sure. stuff. I'm sure. I mean, they made a million albums, and they were very famous, certainly in New York. They were appearing Labor Day weekend with red buttons, and it was like an old Busby Berkeley movie. Their lighting guy <laughs> and sound guy didn't show up. And I had been doing that for the acts all, all summer. So I said, no, I can do it. I can do it. So I, I did it, and I got through it. I was kind of the hero. You know, uh -huh. I saved the day. And after the show, their manager, who was a very famous sort of a legendary manager in show business of that era named George Sheck, who had managed Connie Francis and mm. Bobby Darren. Wow. And big Joey Heatherton. And he was a he was a big deal in, in those days. And he made the mistake or or not, depending on how you look at it, of saying to me, Oh, you're a good kid. Here's my business card. And I just annoyed him all year <laughs> and talked him into giving me a job the next summer That's answering funny. the phone in his office. And that's how my life in show business started. I was 17. I worked for him all through college. And I went on the road with Connie and Connie Francis and Joey Heatherton. And I became Connie Francis, Joey Heatherton's manager. And it all kind of started that way. So I'm just curious on your, you said, you know, your parents were older and you grew up in that. Did that, I've got to assume that at 17 years old, as aggressive and ambitious as you were, that being around people from that generation in your own personal family maybe helped your comfort level I, I, with I, them and you? I, I suspect that's true. Um, your father was 70 when you were... 56 when I was born. Right, so he was 71 70 when you were 70 at my bar mitzvah. My father was a World War II veteran and a big war hero, actually. As a medical officer, he, he, he got the Silver Star for the Battle wow. of Saipan and the Bronze Star for the Battle of Okinawa. And as a result of their age and my father's military background, which I don't talk about very much... The counterculture never took place in my house. <laughs> I was completely not aware of it, whereas to most of my peers, they were acutely aware of it because their parents were in it mm -hmm. and of it, mm -hmm. you know, so. Uh, Are you an only child? No, I have an older brother. But to me, when I then became so ensconced in the world of people in their 50s and 60s when I was 16 and 17, that was the world that I knew. Mm -hmm. the, the, the Vietnam generation was 
counter to everything I knew. I was not comfortable with that world. I had not been around it. So it was sort of, in that sense, you're absolutely right. There was certainly a relationship between my, the ease with which I was right. able to become comfortable with a generation that chronologically was not even one, but two generations. Uh, uh, and probably a be, heartfelt admiration for them. Well, it just was, you, you know, first of all, I, it, it was the show business that I loved. So that was, you know, what drew me to it. I also had, a, I had already acquired an enormous academic knowledge of that world of show business. I started going to the library when I was 10 years old. I read every biography, every book, you know. I was 12 years old. I was taking Georgie Jessel's biography out of the mm -hmm. library. So that was part of why they found me fascinating, I suppose. You honored what they were about. It was, I was very reverential, yeah. and it was hard for them to find somebody of my generation who really cared about them. Mm -hmm. So within a very short time, when I was 18 years old, I was having breakfast at the Buckingham Hotel on the corner of 57th and 6th Avenue, which is now the Quinn, which mm -hmm. is kind of a very cool hotel in New York now. And there was a deli on the corner called Wolf's. And all the old variety agents used to have breakfast in there every day. And they ranged in age, I would say. The youngest was in his early 60s, and the oldest was the 90. Youngest. The oldest was 90, 90, and I was 18. And I had breakfast with them every morning. And I was just part of the group. They looked for me and I would sit and have my breakfast with them. I laugh sometimes because I'm, I'm sure I'm the only one alive who had, uh, as a historian, if you, it's, not, it's, it's secondhand knowledge, but I, I knew somebody who was the agent for Ziegfeld. I used to say, well, wow. what was he like? Wow. And he used to say, well, I used to go up to his office. I used to, and he used to scream at me. I'd say, I used to say to his secretary, is he in a good mood today? No. And I would run down the transom of the, of the New Amsterdam theater down the fire escape <laughs> because I didn't want to see him. And I'm saying to myself, this is now 2017. And I got that story from the guy who did it in 1911. Because I, I think about it sometimes. It would be up. like somebody in 19. 50, talking about somebody who knew Abraham Lincoln, you know, as far yeah. as the time is. We're talking about over 100 years ago. Yeah. It must, so it must affect you differently because we, you know, didn't know a lot of these people. We may have seen them, but, you know, as everybody's older and then now they're dying, like Rickles, um, it must have a different impact on you. When I was 23, I was working in Las Vegas with Connie Francis, and the Golden Nugget had opened. Steve Wynn had opened the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City, and the entertainment director at that time was a, a, a guy named Frankie Randall, who just recently died, who was a wonderful singer-pianist who Frank Sinatra yeah. loved, and he gave him the him. job as the entertainment director. And Frankie was spending an awful lot of time in Atlantic City because they had opened the hotel in Atlantic City. So I was in Vegas all the time, and I was running around, and everybody liked me, so I get a call from Frankie Randall one day, and he said, would you sort of be an ad hoc entertainment director when I'm not here just to cover the acts and make sure everything goes well. So and so I said, great. Yeah, I would love to do it. The first act that I did it for was Alan King. And to make a long story not that long, I just fell in love with him and he fell in love with me. And through the next, within a very short time, I ended up working for him. And I worked for him all through my 20s. And he kind of became a surrogate father to me. And he was how old at that time? Alan was 57 when I met him and remained 
probably the most important figure in my life up until the day he died. The last thing he said to me was, told me he loved me and so on. And then he looked at me and he said, don't fuck up my stories. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, you know, my overriding uh, opinion of you has always been, you're an old soul and you have always been extraordinarily comfortable in yourself. And you have an incredible recall. And it's always been amazing to me how you have been able to call back these stories and remember what these stories were like. So I've always loved talking to you. Thank you. And have found that the things that you knew and the things that you know are just, you know, just the coolest stuff. It's you a, know, so a many misspent things. life. It seems like this natural ability that you have really to, first of all, it's like one, one part of the gift is being genuinely interested in those people and caring about them enough to carry their stories with mm-hmm. you and, and to keep them. But then you transformed it into being the historian for friars. You want to talk about what? what is that? Is that an official thing? Well, like, what I is mean, that? It, it was an official title that was bestowed upon me, but it just Who sort bestowed of- bestowed it? Tell us the, the story. Board, I got a phone call from the executive director one day, so the board voted on making you, because everybody used to call me the historian anyway. So they gave me that title, which is, I, I kind of wear as a badge of honor, but it was sort of a natural thing because- Yeah, you know everybody. I mean, there's, I, I, that you gen- walk down there was the street, nobody, it's like walking down the street with, you know, the president. But but that generation of performers, don't forget, and I, I sort of gave a little exposition before, having been Alan King's shadow from age 22 to 28, you know, I was on the road with him. I was in the office every day. And he was a he was a formidable figure. At, he, he cast a giant shadow. And um, he was very well respected. And so the fact that he gave me his sort of good housekeeping seal of approval, he was kind of aloof and elusive in many ways. So everybody from Frank Sinatra on down said to himself, well, if Alan thinks so much of him, he must be okay. So I got an immediate entree to a place that, and and I kind of just, whatever talent or ability I had, I was just accepted. I was in Sinatra. I was allowed in Frank Sinatra's dressing room whenever I wanted to be there. You know, and you're not a groupie and you're not a fan. No, exactly. And all of those things make it easy to be around you. Uh, I was just part of it. You know, I'll tell you a like a, a story that's kind of curious. There used to be a restaurant on uh, Cannon Drive called, it's now Nick's Martini Bar. Right, La just, Familia. Right, I remember La, that La restaurant. Familia. And Dean Martin used to have dinner there six nights a week at La Familia with his agent and manager, Mort Viner. I used to have dinner there with my ex-wife and we would sit and I, I had never met Dean, but I knew a lot about Dean's early life because Dean and Alan King had had the same manager in the mid in the in the mid forties, a guy in New York named Lou Perry. God, a name that nobody but Jerry Lewis, who is alive today, would even know that name. And they lived together at the Bryan Hotel in New York in one room. And it was Dean and Alan King and a, a comic named Sonny King, a singer comedian named Sonny King, and Frank Military, who was at Warner Chapel Music for a hundred years, who worked for Sinatra and Lou. They all lived in one room. And I knew all these stories about Dean. And actually, Dean and Alan worked together all the time during that period. And Alan was actually working with Dean at the Havana Madrid and got fired and was replaced by Jerry Lewis. And that was the first time Dean and Jerry ever worked together. And then, so I, I, there were a thousand stories, and I know all those stories. So I'm sitting there having dinner, and Dean is sitting there with his manager. And in La Familia, they used to play nothing but Dean Martin records. And Dean turns to his manager and says, Mort. It's so funny. He says, Mort, 
who was the arranger on this album? And more just in the most contemptuous way says, how the fuck do I remember who the arranger is, Dean? <laughs> and I just couldn't resist. And I just turned and I said, Gus Levine. And Dean sort of turned <laughs> who, and looked what? at me. And, he, you know, and it was my opening. <laughs> who knew that? <laughs> and I start. I had this. Now, I knew Mort a little bit because I was already working in the business. I was working at uh, Warner Brothers Television at the time. And I knew, again, I knew guy, friends of Mort, so he had seen me around. It wasn't that I was a plumber. But he was, he was very protective of letting anybody talk to Dean. So... Dean, how do you know? So I talk to him and I, I say enough to engage Dean in a conversation, which was almost impossible to do. Dean was really almost non-communicative in the last years of his life. And that was it. And it was very sweet. And then the next week I come in and I figure I would go over and say hello to Dean because I had had that little interaction with him. And I went over and I got a big hello and we talked for a while and this kind of grew. And one day he asked me to sit down and Mort sort of tolerated it. And until one day I get a phone call from Joe Patty who owned the restaurant. And he said, what are you doing tonight? I said, why? He says, Mort can't make it. He doesn't want Dean to sit alone. Could you go wow, have dinner? Wow, a great opportunity. <laughs> And from that, I developed this relationship with Dean Martin that went on for over a year, almost two years. And it was kind of interesting because I never had his phone number. I never saw him anywhere else, <laughs> but he was my friend in that restaurant. And I was <laughs> one of the only people at that point in his life that he, and then it moved to, to Da Vinci's when La Familia closed. And uh, just a, a really sweet story. I, would, I used to speak to Alan King twice a day. And I'm sort of telling him this story about Dean. And uh, I'm kidding. And I'm saying, you know, Alan, Dean Martin's my new best friend. I'm moving you to second position. <laughs> and he would laugh. And this went on for a few months. And then Alan came into town. And we would have a ritual. I would pick him up at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And we would go to either Spago or Dantana's, wherever he wanted to go. And he gets in the car. And I go, I made, he had told me to make a reservation at Spago. So I go, Are we going, we're going to Spago. He goes, fuck Spago, take me to see Dean. Now, Alan had not seen Dean at this point in maybe 25 years. Oh wow. So, and Dean was frail at this point. And so we walk into, into La Familia. And this is a, this is a, a podcast that I can, I've cursed a little yeah, bit, but okay. I can continue. No problem. <laughs> we walk into La Familia and it, Dean's back is to where they're, we're sitting. And Alan walks over and puts both his hands on Dean's shoulders, leans in and whispers, are you still fucking Maria Lamont? <laughs> Which was a girl from 1945. <laughs> and Dean just turns and he looks and he goes, Alan King, sit down. It must have been a quarter to seven. We left at 3.30 in the morning. Oh, my God. It was and you were the catalyst It was that. just Alan, me, and Dean. Did you know Frank Sinatra? Very well. You did? Tell yeah. us about it, your relationship with him. Well, my relationship with him was all through Alan. He was very kind and very nice to me. I mean, I knew him later in life. He was charming from my perspective. It was an unreal world when you were around him because everybody walked on eggshells, number one, mm. the people that worked for him. There was such sycophantry around him that everybody was just so glad to be in his company. You know, the only Sinatra story, I mean, I have a, a lot of them, but one that I is dear to me is I once said, Mr. S, if you describe yourself with one word, how would you describe yourself? And he said, musician. 
And that gives you great mm. insight into where his, you know, uh, I had a philosophy teacher in college who said, you want to know somebody, figure out from where they derive their self-worth and you will know who they are. Yeah. It's the single most important thing you should try and figure you out. to describe yourself? I still haven't figured it out. The fact that Sinatra said that, and it's indicative in his, in his body of work, because as an actor, he was famous for being one take and he wouldn't rehearse. And because at the end of the day, that's not, it wasn't important to him. But when he was in the recording studio, he'd do a hundred takes. He wouldn't drink, he wouldn't smoke before he recorded because he inherently knew that he was creating art in the recording studio. Mm-hmm. And he left us the most important recorded body of work of any singer of the 20th century. Which he, and is very his, much- his, his ability to understand what he had and what to do with what he had. That was his artistry. Yeah. And his, and his willingness. He, he was a strange dichotomy because on one side, he had a great personal dignity about himself. And yet within the character of the song, he was willing to bleed publicly totally, as no performer ever was willing to bleed. And that's the secret to, to his, I mean, there are a lot of secrets to why he's the best singer that ever lived. He's the best uh, uh, rhythm singer that ever lived because he had an uncanny sense of time that being slightly behind the Mm -hmm. beat, he sang like Basie played the piano. Mm -hmm. You know, you can listen to Bobby Darin or Buddy Greco and they swing great, but they're right on the mm-hmm. note. They're, they're right in the pocket. Frank was just a little bit behind, which gave everything that sense of anxiety. Mm-hmm. The two things that are non-negotiable in singing is singing in tune and finding two and four. I feel a sadness in you. And is it because of all the friends who have gone? What is that know. sadness no, I don't in know. you? I don't think I'm sad. I think the subject, what we're talking about, brings yeah. out a certain melancholy in me. And I started to, which reminds me, because I was going to tell you a, a story, and it, 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 it harkens back to Alan. We were sitting in Elaine's one night, which we did three nights a week, actually, in New York. He drank pretty good, and that can harken to a Sinatra story. As Sinatra always used to say, Alan King, greatest Jew drinker I ever saw in my life. That was his favorite line about <laughs> Greatest Jew drinker. Jew drinker that I ever saw in my life. But Alan looked at me one day and he said, you're in for a terrible time. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you're going to bury every one of your friends. Mm. He said, "Where I said, how long do you expect us to live? He said, you're going to have to make an entire different life for yourself for the second half of your life. And that's a daunting frightening undertaking that you're going to have to live with. And it's very sad. And I, and I was, it was, it, I remember I didn't sleep that night. I've lived my life yeah. in show business. Yeah. You know? Now let's talk about what you're doing now. I'm a, pro- I'm a producer <laughs> at, at a fabulous, interesting company called Rat Pack Entertainment. And Brett Ratner has been a friend of mine for many, many years. I met Brett, um, when he was doing a movie called Rush Hour 2. And, um, he wanted Jerry Lewis to play the villain, and Jerry Lewis wanted too much money, so Alan King ended up playing the villain. And that's when I met Brett, and we've been friends ever since. And when I moved back to L.A. a little over two years ago and decided that I had to get back into the TV business because it's what I knew and the Broadway thing didn't work, I uh, didn't quite know where I was going to end up. And I ran into Brett and Nate Nels, and we talked, and he said, we have this new company, and why don't you come work with us. And um, we're doing a, fan- a-, a show this year with Rosario Dawson, which we're very excited about, and one with Kat Graham. And we have a lot of 
interesting stuff in the pipeline. If I had made my fortune, I would open a jazz club and worry about the sh- how good the shrimp cocktail is. <laughs> that would make me completely you happy. You go back to that live performance space. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, if I would be, yeah. you know, I, I kid Eden Alpert. If I owned Vibrato, I'd be the happiest Jew on the planet. But you could That's, curate something really yeah. great yeah. here in Los Angeles. That uh, wouldn't take a lot of your time, but that may really satisfy But when that. I do something like that, it takes all of my time, uh, and that's the problem. You know, if somebody asks me to run their birthday party, it takes my time because that's how I do <laughs> mm-hmm. it. You're somebody that people can, without a doubt, trust. Your word is impeccable. You keep secrets when you're asked to keep a secret. You, is there anyone that you're really excited for from a talent side where you get that feeling? I mean, I, I spotted Lady Gaga right at the beginning and thought that was something special. I did with Beyonce, I did with Beyonce too, actually, uh-huh. at the beginning on the musical side. And there are, I mean, there are brilliant comedians now. I mean, every generation produces its share of brilliant comedians. You know, there's nobody better than, and they're not even young. They're my generation, but there's nobody better than Chris Rock and Bill Maher. They're as good as the game. Mm. You know, they're as good as it gets. It strikes me that now, like being in in the business that I was, you have musicians and then you have comedians and that variety show multitasking like those guys were doing back then well, where they had a show well, that, and that, they were but acting. That, but that, that, all, that all, I think, is an extrapolation of, of, the, of what we talked about before. It all came out of the Cultural Revolution. You know, why the Ed Sullivan Show doesn't work today is because because people's tastes are so bifurcated and trifurcated by, by generation that it would be ridiculous. I mean, the Ed Sullivan Show f- became ridiculous when you had Jack Carter on the same show as the Rolling Stones in 1972. And they it, it, it sort of bled into that. And when we look back on it, it became uh, – it was uncomfortable – yeah. The, do you remember Bing Crosby and David Bowie yeah, singing together yeah. in a Christmas but, but, special? But that's not as bad because there was something about the idea of Christmas yeah. that's, that transcends generations yeah. and even Christmas albums. It doesn't matter. You could be a rapper and you'll sing White Christmas right. because it's almost a, there's a religiosity to it. It's about family. So that didn't bother me so much. I mean, but I kind of, I don't, I don't think it was so jarring as seeing Jack Carter in the Stones. Did Johnny Carson have any impact in your opinion on all of, you know, with uh, being a talk show host? And well, he was just being he, he, comedic he, in his own he, right. And... He, well, he was a terrible stand up. I saw his stand up, you know, mm-hmm. he did a stand up at the Sahara when he was at the height of his stardom and he was amusing at best. Um, but he was certainly the best at what he did and what made him so special and unique is he was both smart and hip and corny and an outsider all at the same time. You got to be so smart to be a comedian. Yeah. We were talking about this earlier. I was, uh, it had to have been 20-ish years ago, maybe longer, that I went to see Shecky Green with my dad. My dad knew him and I went to see him in LA and my, I didn't really know who he was. And my dad's, come on, you know, we're going to go and see this guy. And I laughed so hard. I thought I was going to pee my pants from the second he sat down. You were just—he was Robin Williams. He was unbelievable. He was Shecky was like a jazz musician. I mean, he did set pieces, and the set pieces were funny. But the improv, and you know, one of the things that happened with Shecky is if you don't work all the time, you lose your edge doing what Shecky did. Like if you if you're a monologist and you lay off for six months. So you don't, your timing's a little off. You don't remember. 
but you get through the night. But when you do what Shecky did or Robin did or Jonathan Winters did, you've got to be honing that every night. And when Shecky was in the lounge and he was doing three shows a night, six nights a week, he was just at the top of his game. I mean, he was brilliant. It was like seeing, you know, it was like going to see Miles Davis play the trumpet. You didn't know what brilliant thing you were going to get. it was improvisational. Get. Totally. Yeah. That, again, they were the set pieces. The set pieces weren't what were brilliant. What was brilliant was what happened around the set mm-hmm. pieces. You never knew. And, of course, you know, there were some comics. If Shecky was pissed off or angry about something, it added to his genius. As difficult as talent can be and as as annoying and sucking the oxygen out of a room, and they were also very vulnerable. And if they let you in and they trust you, there's a, you know, there's a covenant there and you should be respectful of it because most talented people and most artists are vulnerable. And with all the bravado and all the- I totally agree. And all the, and all the carrying on and the, they're vulnerable. And if they, if they trust you and they let you in and you betray that trust- then you're an asshole. Despite, and it takes a certain personality despite, despite to work their, with talent. Despite their bad behavior. Yeah. Yeah. What's your hidden talent? So well hidden I haven't found it. <laughs> okay. So like you don't have any crazy things that you're you know what it is. I, well, I I have my opinion about what it is. You are incredibly trustworthy. And I believe that that's a talent. I don't think that that's something that I think you you have to become that person. People who have who are trustworthy. You earn that. You have to be that person. You have to develop that quality, and then you have to have people understand that about you. I, I, I mean, it's so hard to talk about yourself like this because I've, I just, I really, I, I, I get people that are disloyal, and people who knowingly do the wrong thing lose me. We all make mistakes. We're all indulgent. You know, we all have our moments. We're all human. But evil is not something I want in my life. No. And there's some people that are evil. And I don't mean that in a metaphysical way. I'm God knows I'm not religious. They're just wired to be evil. And when you find them, run away or shoot them in the head, you know, but don't have them in your life. This was really a fantastic fun. conversation. Yeah, fun. Thank you. Really. Thank you for having me. It Love was great talking fun. to you. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you. Next time, you'll meet David Landsberg, one of those rare comedic minds who worked as a comedic actor, screenwriter, and producer. He appeared opposite Don Rickles on the comedy TV series CPO Sharky and wrote and produced episodes of the CBS sitcom Cosby. He also wrote and or produced episodes of Blossom, Star Trek, The Next Generation, Herman's Head, Fantasy Island, The New Love Boat, The John Larroquette Show, and co-created a CBS sitcom called Daddy's Girls that starred Dudley Moore, Harvey Firestein, and Carrie Russell. On the big screen, the Brooklyn native was seen in Coming Attraction with Bill Murray, In Love at First Bite with George Hamilton, Skate Town USA with Patrick Swayze, The Jerk with Steve Martin, and Shoot the Moon starring Albert Finney and Diane Keaton. He and Lauren Dreyfus, older brother of Oscar-winning actor Richard Dreyfus, co-wrote and co-starred in the hilarious comedy Detective School Dropouts. So join us when we rewind to the beginning with one-of-a-kind funny man, David Landsberg, on the next 
Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 